Good morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and find the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. And again, we're, we're continuing our study through the Gospel of Mark, and we're in verses 9 through 13 this morning. And uh, again, this is kind of a part two to last week's sermon uh, as we look at the first eight verses of Mark's Gospel in chapter 7. And as we look at those first eight verses there in Mark 7, uh, we saw another accusation that was brought against Jesus by the Pharisees, by the scribes. And again, this is pretty likely to the story of Jesus as he's dealing with these religious leaders. And the underlying issue that we discovered last week and is here again this week is the fact that these leaders were oblivious to the lie of legalism. They're completely oblivious to what was really happening, and Jesus is here pointing these things out and helping them discover these things. Um, and maybe for us this morning, maybe for you this morning, this is a time for you to, to discover maybe some things in your own heart, in your own life. Now, as we talked about legalism last week, I, I talked a lot about what legalism is. I gave you a lot of things that pointed to like, like a definition of legalism, but I didn't give you just a clear definition of that. And so let me do that for you this morning. Uh, just a kind of a, a dictionary definition of legalism is this idea of a dependency on moral law rather than on personal faith. So it's this dependency upon moral law or uh, outward behavior instead of internal personal faith. And the Pharisees, the scribes, they were, they were more concerned with moral law, outward appearance of the law, than they were about personal faith in God. But Jesus here, he's pointing out that not only are they about moral law, but they're about tradition as well. And these two things are uh, closely associated together. And they really didn't have any kind of genuine concern for faith. That faith is kind of absent from their behaviors and from their lifestyle, from their thinking. And this is what legalism causes. I gave you last week three characteristics of legalism. One being that legalists love to compare themselves with others. And this is not just the legalist, but just human nature. We love to compare ourselves to other people. We do this uh, social media and other avenues. Whenever we're driving our car down the road, we compare our car with the other person's car or our house or somebody else's house. And, and it creates this game in our mind of, well, you know, if I had that, then I would be like this. And, and all these things that are just really lies. And we have this tendency to compare ourselves with other people, and the legalist is really good at doing this, and they always find a way to come out on top, that they're always superior whenever they look at the other person uh, in a, a spiritual light of things, or at least they believe themselves to be superior. Another characteristic of a legalist is to live in hypocrisy, and this is just this constant state of living in hypocrisy, and Jesus again points this out here in verse 6. And that these men were just hypocrites. And this is what legalism leads to. And then the third thing is that it, they lack worship. There's no real worship for a legalist. If you are legalistic, then you're really not concerned about worshiping God, but whether or not people are doing it the right way. And concerned about your own behavior of, well, did I, did I clap at the right time or should I clap at all? Maybe I should have my hands to the side or maybe I should, you know, do the, the baby cradle whenever I worship or, uh, you know, the Superman or, you know, whatever. Like these are the right ways and the right context and these kind of things that people in their mind think, well, this is, this is the right way to worship God or not. And they're more concerned about what their body language is doing instead of what their heart is doing. 
and the legalist is consumed with outward appearance, outward behavior, and not concerned about the inward heart condition. So the passage that we're going to look at today, again, is a second part of the conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees, with the scribes. And not only does Jesus point out their legalistic tendencies and their hypocrisy, but he goes on to give another example of what this looks like. And what they have been doing with their legalism is looking for loopholes. Looking for a loophole for them to say, oh, well, I can justify my behavior because, you know, God's law doesn't say something about this. And Jesus is going to quickly close that loophole for them. And Jesus has, uh, again, this tendency to ruin people's, <laughs> people's religion. And uh, maybe he'll ruin yours this morning. Uh, the problem, I believe, that's being addressed here in this chapter of Mark's gospel is one that's very much alive today. And I, I think this section of scripture is so important for us to take some time and think about our own heart because legalism is an imminent threat to a person's salvation. There is a real possibility that somebody can miss what or who can bring them to salvation. There's this danger with legalism that we need to be aware of. When legalism is embraced, it is impossible to embrace the grace of Christ along with it. Uh, these are, are two things that do not go together. They're oil and water. They do not mix. And if we are embracing legalism, we're not embracing the grace of Christ and definitely not embracing giving grace to other people. The, the mindset of a legalist is to focus on what the person needs to do in order to be righteous unlike what Jesus is teaching about the heart. And so it's this mindset of the hand washing that we saw in the first eight verses, this idea of, well, your hands are up, your hands are down, you use the fist to clean your hands with, and, and that's what makes you uh, clean, a pure. Again, completely missing the point of the hand washing process that the elders had enforced and, and this is part of the whole problem that Jesus is dealing with, with the legalism, with the, the hypocrisy of these people. He's trying to get past just the physical appearance of things to the heart. And what really makes somebody righteous with God? It's not of outward things. There's not a list of things that you need to do in order for you to be declared righteous before God. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is how someone is declared righteous. It's not through hand washings. It's not through the, the appearance that you have. The good news about Jesus starts with really bad news about us. The bad news is that when we compare ourselves to somebody, we usually can find a way that we can end up on top of that scenario. Of, yeah, I look better than that. But when we compare ourselves to Jesus, what do we find? That we are definitely not perfect like he is perfect. We are humbled at how righteous he really is and how humble he really is. And what we find ourselves comparing to him is that there's no comparison at all. And the good news of Jesus is that this sinful man, this sinful person of who we are, God knew that there's no way for you to do anything about that. And in his grace, in his mercy, in his love, he sent his son to die in your place so that your sin could be put upon him and his righteousness could be declared to you and you could be saved. But it doesn't just end with the cross. It, it also goes over to the resurrection of Jesus that he rises from the dead three days later 
victorious over sin, proving that the sacrifice was good and was acceptable, and also that his prophecy that he would come back from the grave was true. And then Jesus ascends back into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God. And what does he do there? He makes intercession for you. He intercedes on your behalf. Legalism. Legalism believes, well, that's nice that Jesus did that, but I I can do these things and I can be righteous. A true view of the cross and a, a true understanding of Christianity is that there's nothing I could do to be righteous, but it's all upon Jesus and what he has done, what he has accomplished. And all of my righteousness is not mine. It's alien. It's foreign to me. It's Christ alone. Legalism disguises itself as holiness because it, it has this, this um, facade of pulling away from the world so my behaviors look different than the world, my words look different, my, uh, you know, my, the way I use words in, in the religious world of things, they sound different. And so all this looks as though I'm different from the world, but really what it is in legalism is self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is believing yourself to be morally superior to someone else, and this is exactly what these men were doing. They believe themselves to be morally superior because they wash their hands better than the disciples. And again, I agree with hand washing. You should wash your hands. So it's not the tradition that's the problem, and we'll dig into that more this morning. It's not the fact that, well, there's this tradition, and all tradition's bad, and that's not at all what I'm saying, and I'll clarify that later. But we should be very careful with this kind of thought process where we are focused only on external behaviors and words and appearances when Jesus here is going to cut to the heart of what these men were really about. And so let's look at the text that we have in front of us, starting in verse 9 through verse 13. We'll see how Jesus attacks this perceived loophole that they've been operating with. Look at verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say that if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition. And you have hand, that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Here Jesus gives an example of the hypocrisy of their legalism. Also, he's pointed out that it's just one of the many things that they've been doing. But there's a whole list of things that Jesus could probably go into, and I'm sure as they're probably hearing these things, some of them are thinking they have better things to do than to stand there and listen to Jesus go after their religion, go after What's really in their heart? Now, in verse 9, it says, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. There's, there's two things I want to highlight out of this verse and kind of split it in two here. And the first is about this idea of rejecting the commandment of God. What does it mean to reject God's commandment? What is this? Isn't rejecting God's command the the same thing as what happened in Genesis 3, the first sin of man? Was rejecting God's commandment? God commanded Adam and Eve to what? Not eat of the tree. Do not eat of this tree. And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. 
So why was it such a big deal that Adam and Eve, in eating of the fruit, that they would die? Why was it such a big deal? Why would God give such a, what we seem to be, as a harsh consequence to something as simple as just eating fruit? Because in doing so, what were they doing? They were rejecting the commandment of God, which is essentially rejecting God. Rejecting God is deny his authority, denying his rights over you. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, this was no small offense against God. God formed Adam out of the dirt of the earth, and then he breathed his breath into Adam, giving him life. And then this mass of dirt that was given the breath of God decided to rebel against God and reject his creator. But because of the fall of man, what do we seem to do a lot? We sympathize with Adam, the offender. We sympathize with him. Oh, poor Adam. You know, he just didn't have a chance. He only had one rule. Like, that was really hard to follow. We, we sympathize with him. Well, you know, if the tree wasn't there, then and we make all kinds of excuses. Well, if I was there, I would have done a better job. No, you wouldn't have. Because whenever God made Adam, what did he make? It was very good. Friend, you haven't been very good. So don't think that you would do a better job in the garden. Well, I know better. No, you don't. Adam, in his rebellion, was shaking his fist at God. He was saying, I know better than you, that your commands are not good, that, that I can do a better job of running my life, ruling my life. And what this was was just a complete rejection of God. And the reality is, in the garden, what happened was that God owes us nothing, and God owed Adam nothing when he sinned. What do we owe God? Everything. We owe him everything. When we reject his commands, we are committing the same act of treason against God that Adam and Eve did. The same action. God owes us nothing. But what he gives us is mercy and grace. Rejecting a commandment is, is not something that the Pharisees and scribes would do blatantly. They wouldn't walk around breaking the commandments. No, that, I mean, even their prayer shawl, right, like that, that they would wear, it, it had the tassels which represented the law and, and how well they were keeping the law. I mean, visibly, they looked as though they were perfect. So they weren't blatantly breaking the law, but they were doing it very very subtly. And isn't this how sin creeps into your life? Probably, maybe most of you aren't blatantly, openly sinning. If you are, we should talk. But probably all of us are subtly sinning and we don't realize it. And Jesus is, is bringing a spotlight onto their subtle sin. And I think we need that same spotlight it needs to be pointed out. There could be a blind spot that we have about our sinful behavior. I could have a, a blind spot about my sinful behavior, my legalism. This is something we all need to hear this morning. Let me just ask this question to, to get you thinking about the commandment of God. Are you rejecting the commandment of God? Are you rejecting his word? Are you rejecting his law? Maybe it's blatantly, openly, or maybe you need to ask the question, 
God, is there something subtly that has creeped in that is stealing away my worship of you? That has driven me into the ditch of legalism? Thinking it's a dangerous thing. The second thing I want you to see out of verse 9 is the second part of this verse where he says, in order to establish your tradition. So whenever they were rejecting the commandment of God, they replaced it with something else. And what was it? Tradition. Jesus has already pointed this out earlier in verse 8, but again, he reiterates that in verse 9. Now, some people believe that they have freed themselves from religion. They freed themselves from worshiping a God. And whether that be true or not, which it's not, because uh, people that think that they've done this, they end up just worshiping themselves, which then they are the God. And, and every time that somebody thinks that they have freed themselves from religion or freed themselves from some other God and they're believing in, in nothing, they still worship something because it's in our DNA, it's in our design that we worship something and it might turn out to be yourself. And so when we worship something other than God, we will always replace his word, his commands with something else. And Jesus points out that their idolatry involved their traditions. Their traditions did not replace the law of God. No, they, they still maintained the law, but their idolatry did replace the spirit of God's law. Which is what Jesus points out in these verses. Legalism does this all the time. When there is an emphasis on outward physical behavior of a person and not upon the heart of the person, the, the inter-man, this is when the spirit of God's law is lost and tradition starts to take precedence over God's word, God's command, God's law. The famous last words of a dying church are these, we've never done it that way before, right? Now, let, let, me, let me give the flip side of that is whenever we establish a tradition, you know how long it takes to have a tradition and that we've always done it that way before? A year and a day, that's all it takes. A year and a day, and we've always done it that way, right? A year and a day, we've always done it that way. It rhymes, okay? So, and that's just how we think. Like, well, we've always done it that way. Well, how long? Well, it's been a year and a day. But a dying church has this idea of, well, we've never done it that way before, and that's usually followed up with complaining, talk about the good old days, also, it comes with much criticism of any kind of attempt to change the way of doing church. Let me ask you this. Have you asked yourself the question of why do we meet on Sundays? Why do we pass the offering plate? Why do we have an invitation time, a response time? Why does the preacher stand in the middle of the stage? Why not to the right, to the left? Why doesn't he stand up in the crow's nest? Why am I not on the, you know, somewhere else? Why do we have a stage in the first place? These are all questions that we probably don't ask. And if you've been in church probably most of your life, you probably never even thought to even think that those are questionable things or traditional things. It's just how we do it. We've always done it that way. One tendency that is formed because of our familiarity with, Christian, uh, with American evangelical Christianity is that when we see anything that doesn't look like us, we get very skeptical of whether or not they're doing it right, don't we? We, we see somebody else doing this over in this country or, or maybe in a different church. And we're like, ah, they're not doing it right. Why? Because they don't look like me. They don't do it like I'm doing it. Again, this goes back to the characteristics of legalism. And it's because of our traditions. So is my message this morning that tradition is bad? No. 
traditions in and of themselves are not wrong. They're not evil. Jesus himself even practiced and participated in uh, spiritual spiritual traditions, but also cultural traditions. He wasn't against tradition. And so my point, I believe, aligns with Jesus' point, which is that when tradition is emphasized over God's word, it is then that we have a major problem. It's then that tradition becomes traditionalism. And traditionalism leads to legalism, and legalism is sinful, and sin leads to death. We need to be very careful with what we do with our traditions and how we think about them, how we practice them, how we emphasize them. Let me give you a couple of examples of, of how this happens where tradition is emphasized over God's word. And let me just point to the Roman Catholic Church for a few minutes of how they elevate their tradition over scripture. They, they do this all the time in different ways. When I was in Israel, we went to all these holy sites that were all over Israel and in Jerusalem and and the reason why it was a holy site was because the Catholic Church deemed it to be so. And that's why it was a holy site. And, and again, I mean, I, I applaud them for how well they can do this. McDonald's, I think, rivals them. But whenever they found the spot they liked, they just put a church on top. And so, like, McDonald's, they found a good, you know, spot. They just put a McDonald's there. And that's kind of what you see all over Israel, these churches that are built on top of these holy sites but the reason why they built the holy site there, the church there, was not because Scripture indicated so, but because somebody had declared it to be so, in their tradition that it was so. And one of the most obvious places, I think, is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre that's there in Jerusalem. This is a prime example of this happening. And the story goes that Constantine's mother, Helena, um, be, <clears throat> whenever she was converted to Christianity or supposedly converted, uh, and this is before her son, Constantine the Great, supposedly had been converted to Christianity, she went on a mission to Jerusalem to find where Jesus was crucified and was buried. And before she went, she was told that the spot where Jesus was crucified and was buried, it was, it was a spot where a Roman uh, temple was built for one of the Roman gods, but it had been destroyed since then. And so whenever Helena comes to Jerusalem, she asks the question, where is this temple? And the locals tell her, well, this is the spot where the temple was. And so it's at that point she declares that this is the holy site where Jesus was crucified, where he was buried. Now, in that, there was three things that they, they claim has happened. And this is all coming under the same roof of the Holy Sepulchre Church. It is where Jesus was executed, he was wrapped in his burial clothes, and then he was put into the grave. And these are literally a baseball throw away from each other. And you can take stairs from the crucifixion site, the, the, the Golgotha, where they believe that happened, to this stone that's on the ground, to the, the place, the grave where Jesus was buried. And again, proximity is not the issue. I don't have a problem with, okay, well, those things are really close together. I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is whenever we compare that to what Scripture teaches there's some glaring problems that we have from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John versus the Catholic tradition of these things. And this is just one example of this happening where the, the church elevates tradition over Scripture. Uh, another example about tradition being elevated over Scripture is in the idea of indulgences and forgiveness with the Catholic church. The, a cbsnews.com article from 2015 writes this, according to Catholic teaching, walking through special holy doors results in a remission from sin when accompanied by prayer and repentance. The remission from sin is called an indulgence. The act of walking through the door symbolizes spiritual renewal and the passage from sin to grace. 
Normally, pilgrims pass through the Holy Door at St. Peter's and other designated Roman basilicas to receive indulgence. But for the first time ever, Francis, that's Pope, has called on the diocese and shrines around the world to throw open their holy doors so that pilgrims everywhere may be forgiven their sins. What's the problem with that? The problem is, is that the only time that salvation and a door are associated together is when Jesus declares himself to be the door. In John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The scriptures talk about salvation coming through God, not through church doors or synagogue doors or any other holy site doors or archways or other images. It is only through Christ. This is the problem. Cults practice the same thing with their traditions, elevating them above what the Bible teaches And the spiel goes that they give is, well, you know, there's an error in the Bible, and so that's why we have this tradition. Or they say something to the effect of, well, there was a new revelation given to our prophet, and that trumps what the Scripture says. Now, don't think for a moment that, well, us Baptists, we we don't do that kind of thing. Oh, yes, we do. We don't claim that there's another prophet. We don't say that the Bible has error. But we seem to like to add things or maybe pass over some things and create loopholes. And this is what legalism does. Legalism demands that we keep the rules or the traditions, but holiness, holiness calls us to personal and moral responsibility. When you live like a legalist, you you don't have to have a personal relationship with Christ. It's, It's not part of the requisite. All you have to do is follow the pattern, the rules, the traditions, and then you're fine. Everything's fine. Just look like this, act like this, talk like this, you're okay. A person that is truly pursuing righteousness and holiness, they have to wrestle with what is true. What is true about God, what's true about yourself, what's true about the situation, and then wrestle with how do I apply that? How do I work that into my life? The legalist doesn't have to wrestle with anything because it's just a pattern, Let's just follow the pattern. Let's just do these rules, these traditions. We're okay. We can go out about our business. We we don't have to worry about what's happening internally in us. Legalism, it, it has an appeal to it. It has an appeal because billions of people are following this. They don't call themselves Christians. They call themselves something else, but it's just a form of legalism where, well, if I just do these things and then I'm okay with God or God's in their view. Legalism has an appeal. Pastor Michael Catt, he writes this. He says, while legalism looks spiritual, it's really just flesh, a fleshly form of bondage. For the legalist, sin is defined as an action someone else does that the legalist doesn't do or approve of doing. It, it looks as though it's working. It looks as though it is righteous, as it's holy, but it's just bondage. It's slavery. One pattern of legalism is to find the loophole. What's the loophole in God's word? Well, oh, here, it's over here in this verse. Well, what about these other verses? Well, we don't have to line those up, do we? We don't have to try to harmonize these scriptures together, do we? It's a dangerous thing. This is what legalism does. It finds a loophole and then it exploits it. For whose benefit does it exploit it for? Their own. 
This is what these men were doing. Legalism will always misuse God's word, and in turn, it will bring harm to people. Why will it bring harm to people? Because sin leads to death. It doesn't lead to life. We see that here in this passage, and they're abusing Corban, which is this neglect that the Pharisees have and the scribes have with their parents. Let me take you back to our our verses here. Look at verse 10. It says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Jesus reminds them, of what God's word teaches and then reveals how they have tried to manipulate God's word with their tradition. Now in verse 11, their tradition was Corbin, and they manipulated this Corbin tradition. Now Corbin, we're told here in this verse, means given to God. This is where my wife and I came up with our son's name, Corbin. This is the only place in scripture that Corbin is used, and Jesus talks about it here. And by the way, if you spell Corbin with an I, that means raven. Different than uh, given to God. And so we went with the A instead of the I. Um, even though there, you know, there's definitely times where we, we feel as though he, he needs to go. He needs to go. Lord, whew, he is yours. He's yours. Um, anyways, yeah. So the, the scripture indicates... the at this one point, about this tradition. And Jesus brings up the tradition. The original practice of Corbin was to dedicate property or money to God. And when something was declared Corbin, it was set apart for God's use. Now, what the Pharisees and scribes had done with their twisting of this tradition and manipulating this tradition was to fit their purpose, their agenda, And so the practice became a loophole for them to use to not fulfill other responsibilities and to meet the needs of other people. This was what Jesus points out here. What they would do was declare their property or or their finances as Corbin. Oh, it's all given to God. So that it would eventually go to the temple treasury, but a person wasn't required to relinquish that until they died. And so what do they do? Well, they, they use... It in the meantime, for their own gain, their own purpose, their own agenda, their own benefit. But it also eliminated any responsibility that they would potentially have for anyone else. Because, well, it's, it's been declared God's. So upon their death, those remaining things would then be passed on to the temple. But I would assume that they're probably really good at zeroing out their accounts. Probably really good about, well, I've I've used it all, and now I die. This vow of Corbin comes from Numbers chapter 30. It teaches about making vows to God and that you're, you're not allowed to break them. When you make a vow to God, you shouldn't break them. So if you made vows last Sunday night and you broke them, shame on you. Hopefully you know what I'm talking about. Third and 15, you were praying, God... This one time, it's been 50 years. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. You're feeling guilty now. So you shouldn't break your vow. And this is what they did with, with the idea of Corbin. Okay, I've declared all these things God's, and now I can't break that vow or else I'll be violating, you know, the word of God. They've manipulated God's word for their advantage. 
And Jesus makes this very clear of what they're doing by them declaring Corbin over these things and then eliminating the care that they could give to other people, specifically to their parents. Now, if you notice how Jesus first starts to address this problem in verse 10, what does he point to first? What does he use as the standard? He uses God's word. God's word is the standard. He points directly to it. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. It says this, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. One of the primary commands of God in the Ten Commandments, right smack dab in the middle of it, is this command. This primary command that God gave. But what has happened here, that these men, they were misusing Numbers 30 and this idea of Corban. And they started to neglect this fifth commandment. They neglected the primary law of God so that they could be faithful to a secondary law or really tradition. In their faithfulness to their vow, they failed to follow in obedience to one of God's primary laws, His primary command. When we search for loopholes in God's word, we will always end up violating His word. If you go digging through your Bible, trying to find a verse that justifies the way that you're living your life, going to find yourself only violating his word further this is what these men were doing even though they they had memorized exodus they knew the law they could recite all 300 plus of them to you and also all the other laws that the elders had the traditions that were there they could recite all of these things to you but they completely missed the spirit of it the heart of it and jesus points this out look at verse 13 Jesus says, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. When we void the word of God, we will always void our worship. This word that's used here, void, that we have in English, in the Greek, it has this meaning of depriving of authority. Whenever you reject God's word, you're depriving it of its authority over you. You're saying, oh, no, that, that, that doesn't apply to me. That doesn't work for me. That doesn't fit me. And whenever you do that with God's word, you do it with your worship. These men believe themselves to be really the most righteous, the most religious people. They thought they were, they were knocking it out of the park and worshiping God. Look how clean our hands are, right? We're really good. We're really pure. But they were filthy. They thought their worship of God was the cleanest, it was spotless, but because of their legalism, they were failing to worship God at all, because they failed to do the first and greatest commandment. And what is that? Let me help you, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your might. I think what's interesting there is that your hands aren't included. Your heart. A a legalist lacks right worship. There's not a love for God in their hearts, but a a fear of not keeping the tradition. Not keeping the form, not keeping the pattern. If I don't keep this, uh, I'm not righteous, I'm not holy, I'm not pure. And they're missing 
missing the point. The legalist looks for loopholes in God's word so that they can justify that they're living their life. And also that they, they don't have to commit themselves to people or to things just like what these men were doing. Well, I don't have to be committed to my parents because it's Corbin. It's all Corbin. I hear people all the time say things like, well, you know, we just can't find a church that's doing it right. We just don't go anywhere. Or they won't become members of a church because, well, that church is not structured right or the leadership isn't exactly what we think it should be. Or, well, they have traditions that they practice that we don't really like and so that's why we haven't joined. They give all kinds of excuses and they're just loopholes that they're looking for so that they don't have to unite with a local body of believers. They believe themselves to be so righteous and so faultless that they have harsh and really unfair criticisms of the church. But these criticisms are camouflage for the real problems, which are the sins of pride and self-righteousness. So there's just lots of complaints about the church, about those people. Well, they're all hypocrites, and well, I didn't really get along with, and didn't like. Really, it's just pride and self-righteousness that's there. I've heard a long list of reasons why some, someone has become a church shopper or hopper from music to programs, from unfriendly people to the length of sermons. But one thing that I rarely heard, I rarely hear, is a concern for the right handling of God's word. I've heard that before, but it's very rare. Whenever I hear why people are church shopping or hopping, it's rarely the issue. One way to diagnose our hypocrisy and our legalistic tendencies is how are we handling God's word? How do you individually handle God's word? How does the church handle God's word? Let me ask you, how do you read scripture? What's your practice in reading scripture? Do you read the scriptures with the hope that you're going to find a way to justify your behavior, your lifestyle, your, your thoughts? Does the scripture reside as judge in your life or is it your opinions about scripture that act as the judge? You say, well, I don't think it means that. Did God really say that? Aren't those the words of Satan in the garden? Did God really say? Surely that's not what God is meaning here. Surely that's not what God would intend. We try to find something that justifies what we're doing. One of my favorite pastors, um, missionary, evangelist, he, he gives this quote. His name's Paul Washer. He says, Do you tremble at his word or do you look for loopholes around it? When you hear God's word, when you read God's word, are you humbled under it or do you stand there with your arms crossed, metaphorically speaking, and, and think, Well, that's probably not what it means. I probably should, I'm going to do some more research. I'm going to read this other book that's going to tell me what that means. How do you handle God's word? Who has the final authority over your life? Is it your opinions or other people's opinions or maybe your traditions? Or is it God's word? Is God's word the final authority of your life? Last week I asked you this question, and, and I'll end here this morning with the same question. That I think is, again, helpful for us to determine where are we at and how are we, what is the trajectory of our life? 
The question is this, are you text-driven or are you tradition-driven? Are you driven by the text of Scripture or are you driven by some other tradition? If maybe you have found yourself to be merely religious and your behavior sound a whole lot like a legalist, but you're really, you're really good, quote-unquote good, let me, let me tell you this this morning. I would tell you to repent of your religion, to repent of clinging on to something that is not going to save you, and cling to Christ. Cling to him. It is only through him and by him that you are saved. It is not through anything else or anyone else. Surrender to him today. Commit your life to him today. Reject this other way of doing things, like the Pharisees and the scribes saying, oh, no, it's this pattern, it's this form, it's this process. That's what makes you righteous. It doesn't. If you thought this morning as you walked in here that, hey, I passed through the doors, I'm going to be righteous today, that's not how it works. If you haven't went through the door of Jesus Christ, you are not saved. You do not know him. I wish you would know him. <laughs> I want you to know who he is. There's too many people that believe themselves to be Christians and they're not. They think they've went through some door. But it's not the right door. It's fake. This idea of legalism, it's fake. It's not real. There's not real righteousness. Do you know him? Are you so clinging to things that you think, no, this is, this is making me right before God. This is justifying my behavior because, well, you know, I, I prayed or I read my Bible or I went to church. If you're not trusting Christ, you're trusting the wrong thing. Let's pray. God, Help us. Help us be real with who we are. Help us be real with what you what you've done. God, let us not cling to things that are fake. Let us not cling to behavior. Seeing it as the answer, it's not. There needs to be a transformation of our hearts. God, help us to repent of our sin, of legalism, of tradition, of holding to things that are not righteousness at all. They might have intended us and, and, and been there to, to point us to righteousness, but we, we manipulated those things into thinking that they create righteousness for us. God, forgive us of our idolatry. Forgive us for degrading you, for rejecting your command and rejecting your authority over our life. God, awaken us this morning. Awaken us to your word. Let us not... Do the same thing of declaring Corbin over things. 
Thank you that we, we found the loophole. God, give us clarity. And give us Christ. Amen.